God was going to send a message to the human race, what would be in there? Love, right? Understanding, explanations, instructions, maybe warnings too. Well, a lot of people believe that the Bible is that message from God to the human race. And if we look in there, we find a seven-headed beast wearing multiple crowns with the feet of a bear and power that was gifted to it by a dragon. Disconnect. Why is that in there? Isn't that more fantasy or science fiction than divine revelation? And why go into all of these details? Why spend so much time talking about the feet and the jewelry? Why not tell us what it means? Well, with our trusty friend correspondences, it turns out that those details are telling us what that creature means. You just gotta know how to speak the language. Stay tuned. everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg and Life. Great to have you here with us. If it's your very first episode, sorry, this is going to be deep end fast. <laughs> My name is Curtis Childs. I'm with the Swedenborg Foundation. This is a show where we try to take the recorded experiences of Manuel Swedenborg and we take life and we try to see does one inform us of the other. In this case, we're going to see can Swedenborg help us to untangle this sort of stuff, massive dragons with multiple horns and all that stuff. If you have thoughts or questions or insights, please get them in. We take live questions and comments at the end of this show, and hopefully we'll have a decent amount of them uh, because hopefully we won't be able to fully explain everything that we're talking about. All right, let's take a look, and hopefully we're going to be touching on not just why these particular revelation creatures exist, but why do all the strange creatures in the human imagination exist? Is there some kind of underlying principle that brings those things into being and can explain our fascination with them? So those are the stakes. Let's see what we can do, beginning in part one, the warm-up. So, how did you like the, that music? <laughs> we're going minimalist uh, in our titles this time. As I said, we're going to talk about the origin of potentially all fantasy creatures. We're going to be talking about these creatures out of the book of Revelation, but Swedenborg may offer some insight as to why. Why is Lord of the Rings is full of these elks and <laughs> elks and orcs and stuff like that? Um, and we got Star Wars has all these humanoid type creatures. Everything, Harry Potter, everything's got these creatures that don't exist. You can't go anywhere without finding vampires and all kinds of things that just you don't have an analog to on the planet. So where do they come from? Maybe we find it in where these revelation creatures come from. Swedenborg says that these strange descriptions of these beings or beasts in the book of Revelation have their origin in the spiritual world. What what do they mean? Why are they there? And really, we're stepping back to say, what do all, why do we assign meaning to animals in general? I mean, don't we have a lot of traditions, uh, we'll have spirit animals, or people will say, that's my, my totem animal or my animal guide or something like that. So why, why do we assign this meaning, this meaning to these animals? Our first clue is in Secrets of Heaven 2179. Let me say briefly why this is so. 
various representative scenes appear in the world. <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking about elks and, you know, like Tolkien, it's elks, right? Various represent representative scenes appear in the world of spirits, and animals are often presented to the sight of the spirits there, too. They include horses wearing different types of ornamental trappings, cattle, sheep, lambs, and other species, sometimes kinds never seen on earth, but they are simply representations. The prophets also saw animals like these, as mentioned in the word, and they arose in the same way. The creatures that appear in the world of spirits represent different kinds of desire for goodness and truth and also for evil and falsity. This is not just a Swedenborg tip, but a life tip. If something gets highlighted right in front of your eyes, you know that's important, as is the case with this thing. That's a summation of this phenomenon of animal representation. You see in the spiritual world, because the spiritual world is the world of the mind and the heart. I mean, that's where our thinking, feeling parts reside at this moment. Everything there adheres to these spiritual laws, and spiritual laws have not things like mass and matter at their core, but thought and feeling. So, when you have particular thoughts and particular feelings going on in one level, they manifest as these living expressions, these animal symbols. Good spirits know exactly what they symbolize, and they also gather from them what the angels are discussing with each other. When angels' conversation floats down into the world of spirits, you see it frequently manifests itself in this way. I can see our audience counter has gone down to zero, which means we must be confusing you. It is confusing. Let's lay out the phenomenon like this. We're in the world of spirits, meaning, <laughs> meaning we have died. I'm sorry. And we're in the, the first place you go to, the outermost level, when the physical body is done, there's sort of this mix and mingle area that Swedenborg describes where you were still mostly in external superficial characteristics. We haven't gotten down to the core of who we are or gone to, to where we really truly want to be. We're here, but there, there are angels high, you could say above, you could say within, in the spiritual world, Swedenborg described distance uh, is not like you think it is. But we've got these angels, they're up there, and their discussions manifest around us. For example, if they were discussing what Swedenborg calls matters of the intellect, we would see around us appearing none other than horses. That horses are a symbol for matters of the intellect. So it's not just like, oh, it's a projector on a screen, like full three-dimensional, four-dimensional, if you count movement and time, animals, that, but they are the expression of these concepts, the full embodiment of these concepts. Let's say they were talking about superficial or earthly kinds of goodness or usefulness. We would see around us cattle of various kinds, or rational kinds of goodness, so the thought behind uh, charity, these sorts of things, we would see sheep appearing around us. Uh, this is cool. I hope this is the, you brought someone you knew, like, hey, watch this episode with me, because it's like the weirdest one. But still deeper kinds of goodness, you would find yourself looking at lambs. That there's deeper meaning, closer to the divine, so more innocence, more love. This, this thing here, what we're saying, is not just a cute, fuzzy animal. It's an image of this deeper goodness. Something at the core uh, of all of life in the universe is expressed in visual form by this animal here, right? 
So that's that. Let's get back to that quote to finish the thought. Secrets of Heaven 2179. Again, the people of the earliest church communicated with spirits and angels and were constantly having visions and dreams like those of the prophets. So this was not something restricted to the people who wrote the book of Revelation or other books in the Bible. This used to be how it always was. This was the state we were meant to be in. For this reason, as soon as they saw an animal, an awareness of its symbolism immediately leapt to mind. This was the original source for the use of representation and symbolism, which survived a long while after their era ended. So that is the precursor to the modern, to, to what we now have as this animal means this, or this animal is an expression of me in some way. We, and we see, you see that play out in fairy tales and those kinds of things, but also in a lot of uh, traditions um, from really all over the world. There's meaning in animals, and then in pop culture it does um, sort of osmos out there too as well. But that's the, that's the essence of it. There really is that meaning to animals. So that's a simplified version. Because what we're going to have to do in order to explain not just a lamb, but these multifaceted, composite, strange animals from the book of Revelation, we're really going to have to fire up our correspondences machine. Correspondence being exactly what you just saw, meaning a, a feeling of, of deeper goodness corresponds to a lamb, like a lamb is an external manifestation. So that's the mechanism, but let's, let's take it up a notch and do, do a warm-up to our major beasts. We'll start with a simple little beast or mythical creature that we call a unicorn. Yeah, did you know there are unicorns in the Bible? It's true, and this is what this is the references, just in case you don't believe me, pause it if you want. Nine times in the King James Version of the Bible, it talks about unicorns. And what what is a unicorn? Well, if we thought about if a unicorn walked around the corner, you'd probably be expecting to see something like this, right? Or that's, that's, what, that's what your daughter would, would be overjoyed to see, right? But that's probably not what's being talked about in the Bible. We're probably actually looking more at something like this. And this is because you look at the word, the Hebrew word that's translated unicorn, it's re'em, that's <laughs> not the pronunciation, I'm sure. Um, it's most commonly translated now as a wild ox, but people are not sure what the word originally referred to, maybe aurochs or wild bulls that are now extinct. People also think of unicorns as horse-like in European mythology, but these creatures were probably like large bulls, or, or the ancestors of those, like in the Indus Valley, they had these big things called aurochs, or elasmotherium, if any of you guys are enthusiasts of pre-Ice Age or an Ice Age mammals, which I, I happen to be, if you guys ever want to talk about that for an episode, questions and comments. Wikipedia, if you want to check it out for yourself, there is a part in that article. I'm not saying this is where we got our information, because you would never get it right from Wikipedia, but it does talk about that very um, phenomenon of the word in the Bible and all that stuff. So that's where we're getting our basis for what the unicorn, what we're talking about when there's a unicorn in the Bible, but that doesn't answer the question of why is there a unicorn in the Bible in the first place? If, if, if the divine, if God is going to say, okay, everybody, I, I love you and I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to give you this great message, why, why are you going to tell us about unicorns? So we begin our hunt for meaning here. This is Secrets of Heaven 2832. The word mentions horns in many places, where they symbolize the potential truth has when it comes from goodness. Divine truth is called the horns of unicorns from the idea of height. 
That is why horns are so often said to be lifted, because elevation symbolizes power from within. Here we start to get into our symbolism, and certainly when you talk about unicorns, all you're thinking about is the horn. I mean, that, that's like the name is corn, unit one, corn, horn, something like that. Let's look at our unicorn again. We're going to go piece by piece. So we're talking about this, um, this horn and what it means. And one, we're going to hearken a little bit back to our number show. One means love and goodness, right? However, when you look at what that horn is made of, in, in aurochs, in the, the, the physical ancestors of uh, cattle and what this beast would be related to, um, what elasmotherium had would be, uh, I'm not sure actually about elasmotherium, backtrack on that. Anyway, it's bone with keratin overlaying, right? You got a bone horn, and bone is just like rocks and stones correspond to truth and understanding. What I'm getting to is that animals in general, correspond to affection. So a horn is something that is used to accomplish an animal's desires. You see a big bull or something, they use horns to push each other out of the way, gain access to mating or to territory or whatever. So these are, uh, that is what the horn is. Then if you look at the whole animal, these kinds of animals, cows or bulls, mean feelings on a more lower outer natural or external level. An ox means the external of charity, the ultimate place of power or the the outermost reaches of power. To recap, we have a single horn growing from the head of an ox-like animal. You can see the connection with the power of truth from goodness. That's what this beast means, the power of truth from goodness. Uh, That's what you get. So this is the truth being able to accomplish something from love. That's the symbolism of an an unicorn. And if you are now saying, what? What was that? What was he talking about? I'm really sorry, because this is just going to get more complex from here. That was just a warm-up. We're going to go now and look at what the locusts mean in part two. Every detail of the text of the Old and New Testaments has meaning, according to Swedenborg, because he was a firm believer that this is divine revelation, but in order for something to be divine revelation, it's got to be good. I mean, it's got to have more to offer than your average book, and he says that everything that's in there, there's no superfluous detail. It's all meaningful. It all has meaning to us and to the human race and in our understanding. So if you want a, a sort of a flyover of that whole concept of the correspondences in the Bible and how the Bible communicates meaning, we're not, we don't have time for the whole thing right now, so I'd, if, if I were you, I'd pause this hour-long episode, go watch this whole hour-long episode, and then come back and finish this one. That explains in detail the nature of biblical correspondence, according to Swedenborg. But what we're going to be looking at here is the book of Revelation and the animals in it, and we are going to zero in on the locusts, but we think we need to give you some context. Let's look at, in case you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, let's look at a schematic of what it is and where we fall in it. So if we were to draw a very rough timeline of the book of Revelation on some old paper, it would look like this. You have a vision of Jesus Christ, and then we're in the throne room of heaven, and then you see these seals begin to get open. You go first seal through seventh seal. Surprise, the seventh seal actually has seven trumpets in it. You got seven more trumpets going, going, then you have this 
drama with the woman clothed with the sun, and these beasts are coming out, and then there are these bowls that are open that have all these troubles and plagues in them, and then there's all, this image of falling, then the white horse shows up, you got the new heaven, the new earth, you end on this really feel-good note with this promise of hope and of a renewed chance for humanity to live in happiness and peace. We're not going to concentrate on that. We want to look at the conflict part. So we're going to go back. Our first character, our first strange creature we find in that third box down, it's actually one of the um, seven trumpets. Here we go, zooming in, the fifth trumpet. Locusts. Yeah, we, uh, we only wrote in the fifth trump, but there's a, we don't want to sidetrack you too much. The locusts, probably a lot of you who even who have had some exposure to Book of Revelation don't necessarily remember the locusts, but let's give you, then let's give you a refresher or an introduction or whatever this is. Um, but before we get to the, the biblical text, I need to give some context for what the meaning of these creatures in general are. And I'm not just talking about these creatures, I'm talking about these for all three of these, and really all four of these that we're going to visit today, the it's the importance uh, the importance of the meaning of these creatures has to do with the idea of having love in religion. That may sound strange, but in in Swedenborg's message, and really if you look at the world, how much trouble is caused by there being religion minus love. Like you have people with ideologies and faith systems, but they don't have the basics of loving their fellow human beings. We've had a lot of incidents recently where people are in a religious uh, mindset, and they go and harm a bunch of people because they think, this is what I can do. I don't have to love my fellow human beings. I can use these religious concepts as a justification for harming them. Swedenborg said that that is one of the most toxic things to the human mind, and the importance of love can't be overstated, so much so that he, in his book, Life and Faith, wrote, this is the beginning of one of, of his first number in that, it says, religion is all about how we live, and the religious way to live is to do good. That, if, you, if that's not in there, in your religious or your spirituality or whatever you want to call it, then um, it's just a shell. It's nothing real, and actually, if you remove that love, it's so drastic uh, that it causes all kinds of problems. We tried to warn you guys about this. We made a music video. We have two music videos on this channel. This was one of them, uh, but I'm going to spoil this whole thing, and we're just going to show you the, the punchline here at the end. So here, let me just hit my fast-forward button here. Me, you, and the planet, buddy, it doesn't work. important point, and that's the point that, that not just we are going to be making, but that the forms of these creatures that we're going through here are going to be making, that once you take love out of spiritual or religion, spiritual concepts or religious belief systems or organizations, you get monsters, and these monsters cause a lot of problems. The locusts, here's how they're introduced in the book of Revelation. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. 
and it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. Every detail has meaning. We could go. We could spend several shows on just those five verses. Go read Swedenborg's Revelation Unveiled or Secrets of Heaven if you want to get more. But I want to say that if I was told, Curtis, you're going to be tormented, and I'd be like, oh no, not that, anything but that. And the person who is telling me this, some mean person, is like, yeah, and guess what you're going to be tormented by? Locusts. <laughs> I, would, I would probably be like, oh, cool, that's fine. Because when we think of locusts, what do we think of? Uh, this, grasshoppers. Even, even a swarm of locusts, if I was a farmer, I, I could be pretty worried. But in general, okay, I'll just close my car door, and they're, they're not going to get me. You know, there's, it's not that intimidating. Uh, however, the, the locusts that we find here are a little bit different, uh, and they actually are a representation of a kind of person. And those characteristics give rise to this creature, which is, this is the locust as described by Swedenborg and by the Bible. So that, it, every part there, we didn't make this up. This is exactly, they're called locusts, but this is what they looked like. And every detail in there has meaning, and this is an effigy of a particular, a kind of person whose mind has been overthrown by, the, by this religious zombieism, if you will. This teachings matter, being in a club matters, love doesn't matter. This is a particularly, actually, if you read Swedenborg's take on it, that he was making a critique also of the church of his time, saying it was full of people like these locusts. So let's go in bit by bit and decode who are we, who is a locust among us? At what part of me is a locust? Where, where do I lean locust? So first of all, we want to look at the head. And this general region is an image of this kind of mindset's inflated self-perception. And detail by detail, we see what that means. First of all, there was gold crowns on their head. And Swedenborg says this is a belief with these people that they were conquerors or that they were going out, subjug- they could go out and subjugate other people to their will or to their way of thinking. Then we have these faces of men, a face like a human male. Swedenborg says a man is an image of wisdom. So they believed, because they believed they were wise, they appeared like this. But it doesn't stop there. They also so nobody's left out. They have hair like women's hair. Swedenborg says a woman is an image of an affection. So hair also is an image of truth, or in the opposite sense uh, of this distortion of truth, of their sense-oriented volition. So their, their will that is very external or superficial. Plus, you can see them a little bit in there. They just happen to have teeth that were like lion's teeth. Now, that meant, according to Swedenborg, that they were confirmed in falsities. They believed that they have great power from these ideas, and that they also were sense-oriented or superficial in their intellect. Teeth signify the ultimates of our life, the outermost things. And when these outermost things, or these, these external ideas, are separated from interior things, meaning when ideas about the world are separated from love and these higher concepts, they do actually do violence to the truth, just like teeth of a lion do violence to good affections like, like animals and those kinds of things. 
All right, that's just the head. There's a lot more detail to go. The whole body of these creatures is an image of their fanatical certainty in their idea, in their ideas, and what this does to them and to the people around them. So they were like horses prepared for battle, Swedenborg says, and Swedenborg says that that was an image that they were convinced that their biblical reasoning was the truth. In Swedenborg's day, these were people who had, they had the Bible, and they had a certain belief about life, and you could see people like this today, that this is what the Bible says about life, and I know it's the truth. And horses are generally a symbol for the the human intellect or understanding, and war means reasonings and arguments. So they were ready to argue against anyone who thought differently than they did. You also happen to have uh, a horse wearing a breastplate like iron, and these this represented their arguments that they had crafted from these fallacies, which they believed were irrefutable. This is this is airtight. Nobody can change my mind. A uh, sort of fanatical fundamentalism. Then the wings are their confidence in the perception of the Bible. Wings, uh, to fly from wings means to perceive and instruct. They thought, this is so right that I can teach everyone else how this is, and I'm, I'm absolutely certain you are not going to, if you try to change my mind, I know you're a heretic, you're against you know, the church or whatever. There's no room to learn or to, to have this humility. Right? So that's the fanatical belief symbolized by the body. And the tail, the tail is a symbol of the damage that this did. So there are tales like scorpions are falsified truths from the Bible which in, by which they induce stupor. So it made them a little bit dull, and it made other people, it took away people's rationality to be so oppressed by this belief system. Uh, so this is, tales also represent them confirming from the Word what they believed and, and making that like a weapon with which they attacked their fellow human beings. Plus, they, this, this curious statement that they were going to hurt men five months, like, okay, I'm in month three, ah, two more months, and then I'm out of here. <laughs> so Swedenborg said the number five has a meaning. Uh, it all it leads to strong, subtle falsifications of the word, which darkens the understanding and deceives and captivates. So people can be led by religious teaching. You can see this happening in the world. They're a great tool for mass control. And Finally, they have this king that's mentioned. His name is Abaddon, or some correct pronunciation, which means the destroyer. And this is a symbol that falsity in its outermost things has destroyed the church. Swedenborg says the Christian church of his day, there was so much corruption, so much harm in it, that it was totally destroyed. So that's the picture of the locust. And Swedenborg knew this in a visceral way firsthand. He actually said he got to travel in his travels to heaven and hell and visit the hell where these locusts lived, or some of them lived. Would you like to go there yourselves? All right, here you are. This is from Revelation Unveiled 421. Let me know how it is when you get back. I need also to tell what they are like and what their hell is like, because I have been allowed to see it and to talk with people there. I have also seen the locusts who issue from it. That pit, which is like the opening of a furnace, is seen in the southern region, and the abyss below it stretches out far to the east. The people there do have light, but if any light from heaven is let in, darkness descends, so the pit is closed off overhead. You could see domed huts there that seem to be made of bricks. 
they were divided into little carrels, in each of which there was a desk with papers and books lying on it. At each desk sat someone who in the world had affirmed justification and salvation by faith alone, by making caring behavior nothing but a matter of earthly morality and works of charity simply matters of civic life that enabled people to get rewards in the world. If people did them for the sake of salvation, though, they condemned them, sometimes severely, because they involved human reason and intention. All the people in this abyss had been learned scholars in the world. Some of them had been metaphysicians and scholastics, and they were more highly regarded than the others. When I was allowed to talk with them, I recognized some of them. Their actual lot, though, is this. When they are first admitted, they sit in the prime carols, but as they affirm faith by excluding works of charity, they leave their first seats and go into carols that are farther to the east. This continues step by step all the way to a boundary where people live who use the word to confirm this as a dogma. Since at this point they cannot keep from falsifying the word, their huts disappear and they find themselves in a desert. So it just causes a mess. This this misappropriation of faith, this misuse of faith, causes all these problems. Cr- creates these communities in hell, draw themselves together around it, creates these things in the spiritual world, causes all kinds of harm on earth. So that's what, if we flip faith in the wrong direction, that's what it is. So how are you supposed to use it? What is this thing that you could call religion or faith? How is it supposed to be used? Swedenborg claims to have the answer to that, Secrets of Heaven 2228. Many say that we are saved by faith, or as they phrase it, simply by believing, but most of them do not know what faith is. Some imagine that it is nothing but a way of thinking, others that it is the acknowledgement of some necessary tenet, others that the entire theology of the faith must be accepted, and others other things. So they err even just in recognizing faith. As a result, they are also mistaken about what it is that saves us. It's not simply a way of thinking, or an acknowledgement of a tenet, or a comprehensive knowledge of the theology. No one can be saved by any of this, because it cannot take root in anything deeper than a thought. Thought saves no one. It is the life we have acquired for ourselves in the world by means of religious knowledge that saves us. This life remains, but any thinking that does not harmonize with our life dies away until it disappears. So we form our character uh, based on actions, loves, uh, choices we make in the world. R- really, that's what's who we are, not what we think superficially, or what we've signed up for. In heaven, people associate with each other on the basis of the way they have lived, never on the basis of thought disconnected from life. Thoughts that are not attached to our life are hypocritical and are categorically rejected. There are two kinds of life. In general, one is hell's and the other is heaven's. We acquire a hellish life from all those aims, thoughts, and deeds that emanate from self-love and so from hatred for others. We acquire heavenly life from all those aims, thoughts, and deeds that belong to neighborly love. This is the life that everything called faith looks toward, and such a life is acquired through everything that belongs to faith. This evidence shows what faith is. Now, you remember what I told you about highlighted things. It is charity, and charity can also be translated kindness, 
or uh, love to the neighbor, goodwill. Faith is love. Everything called the doctrine of faith leads toward charity. Charity contains all those doctrines, and all of them are derived from charity. When bodily life ends, our soul reflects our love. And that sentence there is important, too, that everything of faith leads toward love, leads toward charity. So if something you have that you think is an article of faith is not leading you towards being a more loving person, then it's not what it, it's not what it claims to be. So says Swedenborg, and so says these creatures. By their representation, they are attesting to the truth of it. So we did it, you made it through the locusts, and by some, some measures, the locusts are the most complex, but they're not the most famous, and they're not the most intimidating. That, both those distinctions could potentially go to our next guest here. So let's take a look in part three. You may have all heard of the Red Dragon. Maybe, maybe I'm overestimating the popularity of the story of the clash of the dragon with the woman clothed with the sun or that kind of thing. No, you guys never learned the correspondences of that growing up. Let's get our bearings, take a look at where we are in the book of Revelation. So, we have moved far beyond our trumpets, our locusts and all that. Just after the seventh trumpet ends, the woman clothed with the sun appears and she barely gets comfortable when the great red dragon pops out. And this dragon is not a friendly being. It has it has eating human beings, specifically a little kid, on its mind, and it causes all kinds of problems. So what is this dragon? If what is but before we talk about the essence of it, let's just think about what does it look like? We picture a dragon, we probably picture something like this. It's got wings, it breathes fire uh, it, you're, you know, European kind of dragon. King Arthur might fight this thing, although he would have trouble with that one. That one's big. But what we actually are looking at with the Revelation dragon is something more along the lines of this. Dun dun dun! There, the red dragon. It's sort of more serpentine. It's got all these heads, all these horns, all these crowns. What is it all about? Let's begin with its introduction in the book of Revelation, see if that can give us some clues. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. It doesn't really explain much about it, but I do want to point out that it's important, this idea that it's a little different than the fire-breathing dragons that we normally are accustomed to in mythology. Again, like I said at the beginning of the show, why do we think there are such things as dragons? If Swedenborg is saying there are literally dragons in the spiritual world, or what we could call dragons, because they symbolize this stuff, are all those other dragons, Smaug and his friends, are they there because they are, are in the spiritual world? They reflect something, and we just that, that pops into the heads of writers and movie makers and that kind of thing. But it's important to get this dragon accurate. Uh, and he doesn't breathe fire. He actually breathes water. And he may have more affiliation with the sea than with the, the land and the air. And we had Jonathan Rose, who's the series editor of the New Century Edition translation, give us a little insight on why uh, uh, the nature of this dragon and, and why it's like that. 
the dragon in the book of Revelation is said to be red colored. And the Greek word that's used for the red color there is fiery. It's like a fiery red. So some translations of the New Testament will talk about a fiery red dragon. But that's really the only thing that has anything to do with fire in connection with this dragon in the book of Revelation. I myself, you know, have a picture of a dragon in my mind. This is fire-breathing, flying creature. Yes, it's serpent-like, it has scales and so on, but but it's somewhat different what you read in the in the book of Revelation. When the dragon wants to attack the woman, obviously it casts not fire, but water out of its mouth, a great river. As I studied Swedenborg's use of the term draco, which is the Latin for dragon, and its connection with Old Testament, um, you know, various different types of snakes and serpents in the Hebrew scriptures, I realized that actually this was probably more of a water creature. At least it's sometimes the same word draco is used interchangeably with balina, which is a whale or a sea monster, a catus, which is also kind of a sea monster. Um, and so I realized, wait, maybe I've been thinking about this the wrong way. I should think of this more as a sea monster. The key to the dragon is this false teaching. It's this enormous, powerful body of false teaching. And teachings, things that have to do with truth or falsity, that's water is much more about that. A fire has to do with the side of the heart and whether it's a good or evil love. So it might sort of look fiery on the outside or something, but it's actually mostly a watery kind of image. And that that watery image, as Jonathan was saying, is important because that is that is a representation that's spewing out of water of all the falsity, and falsity is the soul of the dragon. So what is this this great red dragon? According to Swedenborg, the dragon is the doctrine itself of faith without love. This is what was in the minds of the locusts. It's the overall teaching. It's the driving force that leads them all to locust eyes like they do. But if, if you don't believe me, let's break it down piece by piece. It becomes uh, irrefutable. This is uh, the dragon explained. We have a lot of features on this dragon. First of all, it's red. I and mean, we talked about that. The red is an image of falsities of evil compulsion. So evil is this underlying essence. It's a desire to harm, to dominate, all that. The, the ideas it brings forth, that it spawns in order to accomplish its evil aims, that is represented by the red color of this dragon. So you have its first thing, but really, uh, you know, what we're looking at here is the heads. I mean, look at all those heads, seven heads, symbol of insanity from the falsified truths of the Bible. So the worldview cobbled together from pieces of the Bible that that leaves love out of it is insane. Just like having seven heads on a single organism, you wouldn't be able to make good choices, everything's fighting. Even physiologically, it's a nightmare. So that is represented by all these heads going every which way. And you have ten horns, so not seven horns, but ten. Why? If you're just going to make up a dragon... Wouldn't you just have one horn or two horns on each head? It would be, it'd be seven or it'd be 14 horns. But no, they say it has 10 horns, and that detail matters. And because it, 10 is a symbol of all, and you look back to our number show, we talk about that. So that's a symbol of much power or all power. This great sum of power is represented by these horns. And we already talked about the horns being power back with our unicorn. So these correspondences do travel from one to another. 
All right, you also happen to have these crowns. You have these, seven, not 10 crowns, but we're back to seven, because seven is a different kind of all, and this is the falsification of all truths. So because you're coming at your, your, your life from such a corrupt angle, this is it falsifies everything. There's no truths that escape being tainted by that. You're, there's nothing in life that you're seeing without this sort of skewing lens on it. And then he also has this tail, and the tail does something pretty intense. It knocks a third of the stars out of the sky, and this is meaningful. The third part signifies all. Again, if you look at our number show, almost all the numbers mean all, but they mean it in different ways. The third part is a signification of the alienation from spiritual knowledge, that when you drop into a mindset like that, you actually, where you think you know things, but you don't, you actually block out the true knowledge that you could come into. So this doctrine alienates you from spiritual knowledge. Um, Then he also has this intent. He wants to devour the child of the woman clothed with the sun. She She was having a son, and the dragon wants to eat it up. And that's the desire to extinguish the doctrine of the new church. Swedenborg said the new church is going to follow this, this bad way of thinking with a new way of love-centered stuff. See our episode, The Spiritual Future of the Human Race. Uh, and the male child symbolizes that doctrine. The dragon was trying to destroy it as soon as it was, as soon as it was born. So a bad dude, bad dragon. Um, sorry, I got a little carried away there. Uh, in my rage against the dragon. What are the essentials of the new church, of this new doctrine that the dragon imposed? Swedenborg describes them in Revelation Unveiled. This is from number 537, uh, bracket one, I mean, not bracket one, colon one. The people meant by the dragon are in fact opposed to the two fundamental principles of the new church, which are one, God is one in essence and in person, with an inner trinity, and that this God is the Lord. And two, that charity and faith are one like an essence and its form. So these are theological tenets that Swedenborg said matters a lot. And he said the church of his time had corrupted those, and that that, you know, while to us it might seem like angels on the head of a pin, to him, this this is a big deal. This affects the spiritual climate that we're living in. The only people who have charity and faith are the ones who live by the commandments of the Decalogue which are that we are not to do what is evil, and to the extent that we do not do what is evil by turning our backs on such deeds as sins against God, we are doing the good things that are matters of charity and believing the truths that are matters of faith. You gotta, it's got to be about being good. You can't just say, all right, I'm, I, I'm right because I'm in this particular club in Swedenborg's day, it was Christianity, but I'm actually the meanest person. You know, it doesn't work. It's not how it goes. And this dragon, Swedenborg says, was at large in many forms in the spiritual world, and he actually got to see it himself and see it be composed of these, these many people. So this, remember, is a representation of this mindset that can infect any number of people. So this is from Revelation Unveiled 537. On several occasions, my first-hand experience in the spiritual world has presented evidence that the dragon in this passage means people who are devoted to faith alone and who reject the works of the law as not effecting salvation. I have seen many thousands of them gathered into a single group, at which point they looked from a distance like a dragon with a long tail that seemed to be studded with thorny spikes, meaning falsities. 
Once, too, I saw an even bigger dragon that stretched its back and raised its tail all the way toward heaven in an effort to pull down the stars. In this way, my own eyes were shown that this and nothing else is what the dragon means. I might think like, oh, the dragon is just a representation of a mindset that's actually not that potent. Why is it so, why is it such a big deal? Swedenborg asserts it's, this is very harmful, has caused all kinds of calamity in the world and in the spiritual world. He goes a little into why this, this particular dragon is so harmful in Revelation Unveiled 541. He's talking about people who are in this mindset. They insist that anything that comes from human intentions and judgment is not good. Therefore, the good deeds of our, out of caring or, or our good works contribute nothing to our salvation because they come from us. The only thing that helps is faith. Yet the only thing that makes us human and allows us to be united to the Lord is our ability to do what is good and believe what is true with every appearance of autonomy. That is, as though it came from our own intentions and our own judgment. If we were deprived of this single ability, we would be deprived of the, everything that unites us to the Lord and the Lord to us. So that's a pretty big deal. This is, in fact, a mutual element of love that the Lord gives everyone who is born human, and the, that He also maintains in us to the end of our lives and then on into eternity. If we were deprived of this, we would also be deprived of everything good and true of the Word to the point that the Word would be nothing but a dead letter or a blank scroll. This is because the whole message of the Word is our union with the Lord through caring and faith, each manifested by us with apparent autonomy. There you go, there's that yellow, that we have to be able to do things uh, in our choosing in the moment, well, I'm going to do this even if we're doing it with God, because all good comes from God. It's us making the choice and living it out that forms this bond with God. So we have to have that be a part of life, otherwise we're completely severed. So he goes on, The people meant by the dragon have broken this one chain of union by insisting that the good done out of caring or our good works that come from us and from our own intentions and judgment are nothing but moral, civic, and political activities that serve to unite us to this world, but not in any way with God and with heaven. Then when this chain of union has been broken in this manner, there is no theological truth of the word left. And if the truths of the word are used to support the belief that faith alone brings salvation apart from works of the law, then everything is distorted. And if this distortion proceeds all the way to the assertion that the Lord does not command good works in the word for the sake of our union with him, but only for the sake of our union with the world, then the truths of the word are profaned. In this way, the word actually becomes no longer a sacred book, but a profane one. And that causes another chain of reactive problems. So the dragon is destructive. It causes problems. And actually, it's that very dragon in a large group of people that created this next beast. So let's take a look at it now. This one, maybe maybe nobody remembers. The, the first beast from the book of Revelation, not nearly as famous as the dragon. Uh, it doesn't sell nearly as many jerseys, but it still has an important representation. Let's get our bearings. Where are we in the book of Re- Revelation? We have zoomed past all our trumpets with locusts. We're past the dragon, but we're not that far past. Actually, the beast comes right after the dragon. And this is because the beast comes from the dragon, we'll see, even gets its power from the dragon. But what is this beast like? Let's say we were all to play a game where, imagine a beast, what would we imagine? Maybe something like this, 
so like almost like Beauty and the Beast, you know, that if you guys have seen that animated classic, something hairy, kind of uh, like a big bear or something like that. But the beast that we're looking at here in the Bible looks exactly like this. Yep, that that's it right there. Uh, and of course, as you probably guessed, we are going to go into all the details, but you may at this point be saying, you're just making this up. There is no first beast, uh, so we better play a... This is a quote where the beast is introduced in the book of Revelation. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, and his seat, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? People like the beast. People think the beast is awesome. But why? What's it mean? And why is it strong? Why can't anyone make war with it? These questions explained now. Let's break it down. Something looks that weird. It's got to have some kind of meaning to it. Essentially, the beast is this faith, this dragon faith, with not the priests, but with the laity. And you can tell because it rises up out of the sea. That is a symbol of the, the people in the church, the followers in the church, not the priest, which are the, the second beast, which comes from the earth. So the priests, like the, the priesthood in Swedenborg's day, dictated what the message should think. But these are the people that go along with it and say, ooh, I like that. That's fine. That's cool. That's the basics. This, is, this beast, its destructive power, is like that huge mass of people who all have taken this hook, line, and sinker. The beast is a beast because it's a person as to their affections. It's really not rational concepts. We always go after things because we like the way they make us feel. That's what it's getting at here. And then you also have a couple of details which are just the same as the dragon. It's got seven heads and ten horns, which you just go back and look at the dragon. Okay, fine. The, the seven heads is the insanity of this doctrine. The ten horns means it has much power. Because it too... and. The two had this very similar stuff. However, there's a detail switch here. It, on its horns, ten crowns. The dragon had seven crowns. This guy's got ten crowns, and the crowns are on the horns. This is bizarre. If you were writing for a movie studio uh, or, or you know a scripter, and you'd say, okay, well, this beast is going to have crowns on its horns. You'd say, that's dumb. Just have the crowns on the heads. That doesn't. How are we going to animate that? Right? There's a meaning. These details seem weird because there's an underlying meaning. Otherwise, it would just be whatever looks the most powerful. It's not what you'd first think of. So these 10 crowns is the power of falsifying the many truths of the Bible. Remember, we said the horns have to do with truth, because they're bone, and bone is the, the truth, the muscle, the flesh is the love. So these crowns are like this, this ornamentation, this falsification of this stuff from the very book that we're reading from. The, the Old Testament and the New Testaments. There's a blasphemous name written on the forehead. Obviously, we couldn't write that on there. We wouldn't want to get flagged uh, by the YouTube community. So it's there. Essentially, that means what Swedenborg says, denial of the Lord's divine human. 
you don't connect that that God is is this person that can love the, the the love and wisdom we have in us come from God according to Swedenborg toxic to to deny that then you have this body like a leopard and this this picture isn't particularly spotty but there's some in there you've seen leopards they have these spots right of these different colors and Swedenborg says those spots are correspondences of mixing truths and falsities so they, they misuse these truths in a destructive way and then the feet the feet are also a composite animal addition, and that means that this beast was full of fallacies from the literal sense of the Bible. Uh, feet being the ultimate or natural level of things, so just this lumbering, kind of bear-like understanding of the text without the subtleties of, of love. Then the mouth is like the mouth of a lion, which is not just the teeth of a lion like the locust had, but the mouth, which is different. This stands for reasonings from falsities as if from truths. And that is because uh, a mouth is what, what you teach, what you preach, it's your doctrine. A lion is a symbol of the divine truth. But because this is like a lion's mouth, but it's not, it's the, you're mimicking, you're l- trying to convince people, oh, I have the divine truth, I have the divine truth, uh, believe me and be persuasive, but it's not really, it's not really a lion. This is not the divine truth itself. So those are a couple things about the beast. The dragon, like we said, gave this beast its power. So that meant that this heresy prevails and reigns in consequence by its reception by the laity. They've been convinced by their teachers, but they, they wanted it, they grabbed on it. They said, this, this is what we like. We don't want any of that hard, love your neighbor stuff. We just want to know we're the best because we all believe the right sorts of things. So the, there's a message that Swedenborg gives about this further in Revelation Unveiled 575, he talks about that phenomenon. The dragon uses the laity to flourish and take control primarily by means of this dogma of their religion, that the intellect is to be held subject in obedience to faith, that this faith is something that cannot be understood, and that faith in anything involving the spirit, if it is understood, is an intellectual faith and does not provide justification. When this is in control among the laity, the clergy gain power, reverence, and something like worship because of the divine matters people think they know about. Divine matters the laity is to drink in from the mouths of the clergy. You know, the, 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 um, you, you, don't, you don't know. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter. It's true. Just believe us. Giving this, ceding this ultimate authority to the clergy, that leads to all kinds of problems because the clergy runs unchecked. It also makes you check out as a believer, you're just, okay, well, that you, what you're telling me doesn't make any sense, whatever. That, that's the attitude that doesn't lead to your development, and it doesn't lead you to questioning heinous practices by the church. It acts like a beast in the world. If that's not dramatic enough, there's this part where the, one of these heads of the beast was grievously wounded. It actually says, I saw one of its heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. What does that mean? Swedenborg says it means the central doctrine didn't align with the text, and the remedy applied. But that, what, what is that? I still don't understand, so I'm pretty much at my limits here. But luckily, we got some input on this from Dr. Jonathan Rose, where he goes a little more into what this wounded head means. Swedenborg says that this head that is mortally wounded 
was their concept of salvation, which is that they removed it from the idea that it has anything to do with the way that you live your life, the way that you behave and so on. Swedenborg says that whenever you, if, if your teachings, you know, if teachings within Christianity depart from what scripture says, that's a sickness because the church is supposed to be in alignment with what scripture says. And scripture says, as I believe your show is, you know, covering in other ways, just thousands of times that you have to live well. It's of the greatest importance. And scripture says very clearly that our salvation is based on this. Oh, so, yeah, of course we've been going over that in our show, Dr. Jonathan Rose. Of course we have. Uh, okay, guys, make up a graphic about that real quick. Can you? Okay, here we go. <laughs> Here's a bunch of quotes in the Bible that talk about good works. In Matthew, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever doesn't teaches them, he shall be called greatest, great in the kingdom of heaven. And then I can't read that fast, so there's Matthew, Matthew, Matthew. It happens again in Luke. We actually got to zoom through these if we're going to get through them. You see there in John, there's all kinds of material there. Every one of these about love and acting. Romans gets in on it, Psalm. Revelation, this very book we're reading from Jeremiah, Hosea, Matthew. There's a giant one in Matthew. Luke's in there. John's in there. Revelation again and again and again. Uh, And then we'll end with a Z, Zechariah, or he says, according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Obviously, that's not comprehensive, but this is just a little thing to give you a clear idea that the the text of the Old New Testaments is completely saturated with this do good, don't do evil dynamic. So there you go. Take it away again, Dr. Rose. The head that was sick was this concept that arose that it doesn't matter how you live. Jesus died for that. That's all taken care of. You don't have to worry about it. You know, we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. We're saved by our faith apart from the works of the law. Uh, don't, Don't worry about those thousands of passages that say that our salvation is based on the way that we live. Uh, Because that's, you know, so the sickness that developed was a sickness in that theory of salvation that it was not based on the way that you live your life. It's just based on faith alone, period. If you believe in Jesus, you're fine. You're all set. How did that sickness get cured? You see, it says that this head was mortally wounded and this deadly wound was healed. The workaround that was figured out, we're like, wait a minute, this doesn't agree with all of Scripture. That certainly would have been deadly to that whole philosophy in the church if they hadn't figured out some workaround. Wait a minute, what are you going to do with the fact that this contravenes, you know, thousands of things in Scripture? Well, the workaround was to say, oh, you can't, it's that hard old law, you can't you can't live, it's too hard. We can't live by it. We're evil. We're, we're nothing but evil from head to toe. And so the, the, what can we do? We have to look to Jesus. It, it's his merit, his righteousness, that believing in that, that's what's going to save us. Swedenborg has an interesting answer to that, which is that, yes, of ourselves, from our own lower self, no, you can't bootstrap. You can't brownie point yourself into heaven. You're not going to lift yourself up into heaven. Uh, just by, oh, all the supposedly good deeds that you're doing. We need the Lord for salvation. But it's not true to say, therefore, it doesn't matter how we live. 
heavens, you know, all the script, then, then why have scriptures? Why have church? Why have sermons? Or why exhort each other to live better lives or something? You know, that would be pointless if Jesus just fixed it, then it's fixed. We don't have to do anything. Just close the church, go home, throw out the Bible. We don't need it. That's not what he's saying. As you live by those things, as you repent, as you follow the Ten Commandments, then the Lord can bring you into that better state and save you. And the way that you live, you're doing those things, you're following the commandments, is essential to that. So you gotta, you gotta live it, and that's if you try to div- divert from the text that much, you're killing the head, you kind of cobble it back together, Frankenstein it back to life, but it doesn't have the true life in it. However, that wasn't a, you know, that wasn't a problem to a lot of people. They loved this beast. As you saw in the text, the whole earth wondered and said the beast was awesome. So what did all that mean? Uh, we go to our final slide about the beast. It says, the world marveled and followed the beast. This doctrine and faith was gladly received. It became the doctrine of the whole church. The people were, there was some element that was looking for, hey, yeah, I don't want to have to be good. I just want to have to be in the right club then that works just fine for me. So we have these three beasts of various kinds. They all relate to each other. The, the relation is as follows. In the middle there, you have our locust. This is an individual who believes in this life of being religious but not loving. Then you have the dragon behind it, which this is the idea of that you can just say the right things act in a particular way, do the right rituals, and then that's fine. You don't have to do this whole love the human race thing. That's the driver behind it all. And that beast is when you get a bunch of locusts in the laity, so not the teachers, but the people who grab it and do it. That's their actions all together. So in all these, you get this havoc wreaked on the world here, how much damage has been done here by people who just want religion to be a club rather than a a way to love others. Uh, And then also it's got this toxic effect in the um, the spiritual world as well. So it's been a pretty downer of a show so far, don't you think? All these beasts have an evil meaning. It's all about a distorted understanding of the scriptures. But what's the opposite of that? What is a true understanding of the Word? Well, what just so happens, we're going to find out in the next section. So cherubim, we all we all know cherubs, right? That's not too much of a stretch. And this is actually going to be a friendly face in this this tour of or this biblical safari that we're on. So let's all real quick imagine what does a cherub look like? Well, we all know that it looks like this, yeah, like a cute little sort of grown up baby thing. It's like going to help us out. It's got wings, and that's fine. Um, but the cherubim described in the Bible uh, actually look like this, which, as you can see, there's a slight difference between that giant bundle of eyes and heads uh, and the baby. So what's going on there? And we did say, though, that the, these cherubim are good. This That's a friendly, it's actually even more friendly than that little baby, and we're going to look into why. But first, where are these cherubs in the book of Revelation? Let's get back to our schematic. They're actually here for a good part of the book of Revelation. They appear in the beginning in this throne room of heaven, so then all these seals and trumpets that go off, the cherubim are there, and they're sitting there. So they are also mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, uh, and and it's all 
it's all the same meaning, and that meaning is these are the Word or the divine truth emanating. This is an effigy of the divine truth, and Swedenborg talks about it in True Christianity 2.6. The words divine truth and the qualities of that truth are portrayed by four creatures that are also called angel guardians, and by four creatures in the middle of the throne and next to it in Revelation 4. So let's read that Revelation quote here, and you can hear when this particular group makes their entrance. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We're bringing them all in together instead of giving them their own sections because they live as a unit, particularly in the Ezekiel reference to them. It says they all do things together as a unit. And these beasts, they in one sense mean divine providence, or they mean God's guidance over everything. If you want to know how that works, and why wouldn't you check out our show, Why Bad Things Happen, This we get into the problem of evil, everything there. Uh, we don't have quite time for a discussion of that size within this episode, but that's a great place. If you pause this show again, watch another hour, then get back to this show. So they also, and this is what is sort of the same thing, mean a true understanding of the word. All these bad beasts, the locust, red dragon, first beast, they meant this false understanding of the sacred scriptures, these things mean a true understanding of the word. And how do they do that? And why does it lend its, them this, this uh, fantastical sort of frightening appearance? We will explain it for you now. So we've got these cherubim. Um, they're described, they're also called living creatures. And why living? Uh, there's, they have this life because it's the word and its fullness and truth and divine providence. It's the living action of divine love and wisdom, of the God that's behind all of that. Everything that comes from God has life in it, according to Swedenborg. But that's not really what you're here for. You're here because you want to talk about these eyes. Why they have so many eyes? And there's actually eyes mentioned in two places. First, it says they were full of eyes in front and in back, and that is the divine wisdom within the Word. And it's that because you have eyes in front and in back. Why does it include both, in front and in back? Is that just to let everyone know, I, I walked around the back, and yeah, there was eyes there too. No, it's got this symbolic meaning, because the front is divine wisdom, and the back is divine love, which might seem weird. Why wouldn't love be first? But wisdom is the form or the proceeding of love. So the essence is love, but the, the shape it takes is this wisdom. That's what, that's what we can come in contact with, is this wisdom that can bring us to that love. So that's the eyes. And then you've got the form of each of these. You have a lion there, which as we talked about, the divine truth of the word as to power. We talked about it earlier, um, a deceptive lion's mouth on the beast, but this is the actual thing. So this is the power of a lion. When you see a lion, if you actually hear one of those things roar, 
It's amazing. The power of a lion, that is a representation of the actual power in this divine truth. You have this, another living creature who is like a calf. And we talked before that these kind of animal, these kind of grazing mammals are like an affection. So this is the divine truth of the word as to our affection, how that can affect what we care about if we approach it in the right way. Then we have a divine truth of the word as to wisdom, face like a man. This is just like the locusts had sort of the antithesis of this, where they thought they were wise, so they too had a face like a man. Isn't it weird that they stick a human in there with all these animals? You'd think that whoever wrote it, they'd send it back for an edit. You know, why, why, why is there a person and animals in here? But it's because it means that same thing. And then finally, you have this uh, flying eagle on the top there. And the flying is this elevation and this ability to provide and, and divine providence. And, and it's just like the ox was uh, instructing, instructing and a leading, this is done so from, from a high perspective. So then, of course, you got these things all around them, these, uh, these wings. So they have six wings, and this symbolizes the protection of the inner power of the word. And why six? It's because, uh, first of all, you have this power because wings are like arms, but they're even more so because they can lift you up. But then if you looked at our numbers show, we have two times three is where you get six. And even numbers are good, odd numbers are truth. So you have two symbolizing the love, three symbolizing the truth. You put these together, you get six. I'm, I'm not making that part up. Go look at our show. Uh, the previous show. That's what it's all about. And again, these wings have eyes in them. So this is the divine wisdom in the Word in its natural sense, from its spiritual sense and celestial senses. This is the progression of the deepest, most inmost ideas, most inmost ideas, out to the ones we can comprehend and understand. That's what those eyes are, and it's even a little mystical to us here. So there you go. That's the cherubim. Oh, right. They, they, uh, not to mention, they have a, a behavior that's described here. They do not rest day or night. And what that means is the Word continually teaching about the Lord and that He alone is God and that He alone is to be worshipped, that love is the greatest thing. So there you go. There's cherubim. And we, so we've, we've had uh, a, a description of all these animals and beasts and what they mean. But what is that? What is that to us personally? Are we just trying to, even if we know some of the inner meanings, are we just trying to look and see, okay, who's a, who's a scorpion? Oh yeah, I know for sure that Jerry's a scorpion, you know, uh, and, and Annalisa is the first beast for sure. No, this is, these are things that we can be looking out for in ourselves, because uh, any of these can creep up in us, the good or the bad. Let's frame it with a sort of modern psychological term. You ever heard of implicit bias? Uh, there's a study recently done at Harvard about this where we naturally gravitate towards having biases that favor our own group. The, the study was this researcher had people come in and they wrote about, uh, they, they took survey questions, and they, these were good people who thought, like, of course I'm not, like, racist or I, I, I'm not, like, uh, classist or anything like that. But the, what the answer showed was we all just have this implicit bias. It's in us. Even if we have good intentions, there's this tendency to favor the, the groups which, which you belong to. We, and we can look at that as we have a tendency towards these first three beasts. There is a human tendency toward separating 
ideas from love. They think that because of what I know, uh, that is that makes me right, that makes me better. I can argue with you about this, uh, and, and that that is okay because I'm justified in being right, which causes all kinds of problems. So what we got to do, uh, any of us, if we look at other people, Swedenborg met people who are absorbed in this locust mindset, we have that same kind of slope pulling us there. So let's avoid it. Rather than putting all the energy into judging people, let's avoid it in ourselves. And how do we do that? We can avoid it by tapping in to the cherubim perspective and by approaching the word in the right way. Or if, if you're not going to approach the Bible, I bet you could apply this to your own sacred text or, or whatever you get your meaning from. But here's what Swedenborg said specifically about the text of the Bible. We'll go through these cherubim. How can we embody them one by one? The power of the lion uh, is this power of fighting against evils and falsities from hell. So how do we invoke that in ourselves? We can read it. There's a heaven and hell battle inside each of us. It's not just a spiritual world thing. So if we are going to this text saying, how can I look at my own behaviors and open myself up to God's insight into what is good to keep, what is good to put away, not this whole self-judgment thing, but but constructive action, that's like the power of the lion. Yeah, the power of the calf, it's a symbol of affecting minds or affects those who read the word as holy, Swedenborg says. So if we approach it as holy, rather than saying, we already know what this text says, we're just going to go after using it to prove our own points and put us in the in crowd. If we say, this is holy, we approach it with wonder and curiosity and awe, like I'm here to learn, and we can more easily feel the presence of the divine. The power of the human is the power of being wise as to what God is and what is of God. So this is essentially humility, that, that a, a component of human spiritual development is to be humble with a genuine desire to learn about to learn about the divine through our text, learn leaving our preconce- preconceptions and saying, what, what can I learn? And what can I learn about treating my fellow human beings better as well? And then the eagle is the power of knowing goodness and truth, thereby acquiring intelligence. And even on a a high level, you know, a bird's eye view of the whole thing, studying the text for love. How am I finding love? How is this a message of divine love? If we're approaching the text of the Bible, of the New Old and New Testaments in that way, there's no way you get wrapped up in this stuff, and hopefully it becomes a positive addition to your life. And if you don't care about having positive additions to your life, at least you got to hear about some weird creatures and what they one, one weird guy thought that they meant. <laughs> so if you enjoyed it for either of those reasons, please like and subscribe, and because that will help spread the weirdness out into YouTube, which is a noble cause in itself. And uh, we're going to get to your questions, but first, if you want to help programming like this continue, like is it, who else is putting the time into describing the meaning of the crowns on the horns of the beast from the book of Revelation. We need the support of people who are interested. So if you consider making a donation, that would help us out a lot. Here's a little bit more about who we are and what we do. We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com, and we produce this show and other content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up, though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider supporting this cause with a donation. Give if you can, receive if you need. 
If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins. Everybody wins. That doesn't sound so bad. All right, let's uh, let's make good on our promise. I said I would take. Well, I said we would answer questions, but if you've seen the show, I rarely answer them. But I do talk about them. All right, let's see what the first one is here from YouTube. Cynthia, why does Swedenborg talk a lot about the falsity of people in the way they were in the world in his works? Verse about the good. So why? So how I'm reading that question is. Why does he go on about the kinds of falsity people are in as opposed to the kinds of good or evil that they're in? I think it's because falsity uh, concepts manifest themselves more easily, and they are what leads to changes in, in good and evil. That, that's, that's sort of our external... You can tell by con- conversing with people, that's the external form. So we said the eyes in the front in that one beast are this, this uh, wisdom, and the eyes in the back are love, because it's harder to see the love that, that you, you more easily can be categorized. Now... There's this there's this alternative viewpoint that he also provides, which is that really the stuff in the mind falls away. Um, it's really what we love that matters. However, the stuff that falls away is stuff that we believe that's not connected to what we really care about. What we really care about is the driving force. It spawns our thoughts. So tr- thoughts that we really make part of ourselves, they're an indicator of our love. So by learning what kind of falsity we're in, or or truth we're in, hopefully, we can kind of learn about What's what's the deeper in there? That the thoughts are the are the form that the love often takes. So if that's your question, there's my answer to it. All right, thanks. Let's look at number two. Genie, YouTube. Doesn't Scripture teach that the heart is deceitful and wicked? How then can we know our motives and be sure that our intentions are loving and kind? Yeah, that you will find that in the Bible, um, and there's some truth to it. I mean, we definitely have a propensity as the human race towards negative things. Some positive things, too, but there is this sort of selfish tendency that's fine to acknowledge in us. I don't think we really need to worry about being sure that our intentions are loving and kind, because you're not going to be able to get that that much specificity in real time. You try to do what you can, and I, I'm never going to know for sure, like, am I trying to make myself look good? Am I trying to really help? Is it a combination? How much of each? You just be honest with yourself uh, to an extent. I'm trying to do this, or and you ask your higher power, will you help me do this? And then you, you live with the results. We, we, can, we can't, like, split hairs, but we can make sure, okay, we're at least on the highway, the, the, we're, we're trying to do things that we know aren't overtly bad. And it's really, it's really not even about forcing ourselves to be loving and kind. It's, Swedenborg says it's really more about pushing away the things we know are bad. So if you have things that you know you're doing for a nefarious reason, focus on resisting those. Not, you're not going to be able to do it 100% of the time, but as much as possible, then with that, that opens the door for these good things. So it's really spiritual growth, according to Swedenborg, is more on this block the negative end, and then, you know, don't get too um, hard on yourself about, are, am I be, did I really do that because I'm good, or did I do that because it made me look cool, or, or because I want it? You know, try, try your best on that. What we can do is identify a few harmful things and not do them, and the good things God will give us more and more naturally. So those, those are my thoughts on it anyway. Thanks for the question. Next one. Ray, are there different levels in hell? There certainly are. We did a show, I don't know if we really talk about the levels there, but it's called The Good Thing About Hell, which describes 
Swedenborg's hell, uh, what he what he reported about it, and so he generally says there are three levels of hell, which are opposed to the three levels of heaven, which are the outermost, inner, and, and then the inmost. And we talked about falsity and evil, that the the second level of hell is where falsity has overtaken the mind, but the third level is where evil has overtaken the heart, uh, and overtaken through our gravitating toward it and loving it. But the, he called the people in the third hell the lowest demons, and the second hell Satan's, and then the one in the top, he sometimes called them evil spirits. Um, so there are different levels, and this has to do with the, Swedenborg says, in the mind there are different levels, and as we shut them off, to the, the more we shut our mind off to what's true and good, the, the less we are, uh, the, the further we distance ourselves from heaven, and that's what creates these levels uh, in hell. So that great question. Let's take a look at the next one. Mary, will we all understand all this material and symbols when we die and go into the Spirit? Yes. Yes. If you want to save yourself a lot of agony, don't watch this show. Just wait till you get to the other side. Um, you do, we do come into this knowledge. Swedenborg says that there is a, a transformation. You take what you had with you, but there's an expansion. There's an exponential expansion there. People understand things and speak on things much more easily than they ever did. And he says, like, good spirits, like we talked about in the beginning, they can know, oh, a horse symbolizes that. We do this this language of correspondence is as obscure as it may seem here is actually is innate to the human spirit, and that we we do understand it. So it's not like you'll have to be instructed in the same way about it. I think you can gain more and more wisdom, but really that comes from love. So the more loving you are, the, the more you know things like this innately, and when we open up all the way, you just instantly understand what things mean. There's not this same like studying and, and figuring out. So certainly, yes. Okay, let's do another one. Zeke, I have been seeing a lot of birds. What are their symbolism? Birds are an intellectual thing, according to Swedenborg, that their correspondence is correspondence with thoughts. They are actually a higher form of thought because they can fly, that fish are like a lower form of thought. And lower not meaning worse, but just maybe more more external. Or, or, or yeah, so, so birds are these higher kind of spiritual concepts. And we saw that eagles, like very powerful birds, can have a good symbolism uh, that's, that's divine providence and it's a heightened perspective, or they can have a negative symbolism, which is, you know, using your your advantages to attack other people. So birds can obviously, everything can have a positive or negative symbolism, so it can be, uh, so when we talks about birds that can see in the darkness being a symbol of a mind that, that thinks that falsity is truth and truth is falsity, because they see by darkness rather than by light. There's a lot in there, but in general, it all it's the intellectual side, whereas mammals are the volitional or emotional side. So great question. All right, let's do one more. TN works. Does the symbolism come from our interpretation, or is it universal when we tap into that and make those associations as well? It's a that's a great one, and I think it's it's probably both. Um, there is a universal language that we can speak, and this this symbolism. But I bet that it's colored a bit by our individuals. I I do know that 
Well, I, I think Swedenborg leans more toward universal. I think when we're having dreams and those kinds of things, there is correspondence in there, but a lot of it is highly personal. But once you get into the spiritual world, into the um, the deeper meaning, there is kind of a, a readable universal language, because Swedenborg will talk about angels um, being able to tell instantly someone's character by what kind of things pop up around them in that world, and that that's sort of a there's a anyone can look at the same things and know that from it however i bet that we're talking about a very if it's all true it's a very complex concept and a very complex phenomenon i bet there's there's elements of both uh, you know i bet when you get there it's a very living thing and there is there is a lot of talk of of swedenborg talking about spirits learning what particular things meant to him and trying to use that against him. And so there is this personalized aspect to it. So this is a great one to end with because I can end with, I don't know. I don't really know. Maybe, sort of. And, and that's that's where I feel comfortable. Thanks, everybody, very much for your questions. Really appreciate you hanging and doing, you know, an hour and a half of uh, the strange creatures of Re- in Revelation and, and their meanings. Uh, if you want to see a little meaning of this program, and the sort of the things that are behind it. Join us next week. We're going to do a behind-the-scenes kind of show where we look at some of the, the stuff we've put together, give you some extra Swedenborg insight in it, and you'll see some behind-the-scenes stuff too. Not to be missed, that's going to be posted uh, next Monday on July the 4th. It won't be a live live, but it will be a video there for you to watch the whole time. All right, thanks everyone for hanging. Hope to see you next week. 